Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for January 20th, 2019. Today, Brother Omar brings us part two of his message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of Salvation. Brother Omar reminds us that when Jesus died, he died for the whole world, and we all can accept God's gift of salvation. And he also brings out how because God is sovereign and all-knowing, he has full control over all things, even when they seem to be out of our control. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's Word here on Followers of the Way. So we're talking about the doctrine of the atonement on the statement of faith. The last sermon I covered sort of like the principles of what the atonement is, what the Bible teaches about the atonement, the work of Christ on the cross on our behalf. So today we're going to spend some time on the extent of the atonement. Okay, so Christ did this amazing work. So the question is, to whom he did this work for? He died for the whole world. And who is it that can appropriate the work of Christ on the cross? So the question is, for whom did Christ die? And we're going to be interacting with these four fellows here, something that we know as Calvinism or Reformed theology. Fancy word, right? Well, you've heard the term Reformed theology. You've heard the term Reformed churches. What is it to be Reformed? So today, I'll spend some time sort of defining what Reformed theology is. It's going to be very, very generalized overview because Reformed theology is this big theological system. Let me give you the story. Reformation happens, right? Martin Luther, Remember the whole 95 Theses and all that? Well, there was two main traditions that come out of the Reformation. You have the Lutheran Church, because of Martin Luther. And then in Geneva, in Switzerland, there was another guy by the name of John Calvin, hence the term Calvinism. Okay. The two systems are similar, but not really. Okay. They are Similar in certain issues, but not really on other issues. So that's why they separated, okay? Because they disagree on certain doctrines that they teach, okay? So Reformed theology is the name given to the tradition that comes out of John Calvin and the teachings and his writings, etc. He wrote, which is probably the most complete, long, drawn out, not very entertaining systematic theology ever written, which is called the Institutes of the Christian Religion, Amen. which he lays down his entire systematic work of all the doctrines of the Christian faith. I own a copy. I recommend it. It is amazing, except on certain places. Okay. And so Reformed theology is this sort of big umbrella. And within that big umbrella of Reformed theology, you have certain traditions such as the Presbyterian Church, uh, the Dutch Reformed Church, and some folks that call themselves Reformed Baptists. Now, there's a debate as to whether Baptists could be called Reformed because they don't baptize babies. We're not going to get into that, but that's a battle that they have. Nevertheless, when it comes to salvation, Reformed theology is expressed in something that we called Calvinism. Okay? And there are five points of Calvinism. All right. In the English-speaking world, this is known as these are the five points of Calvinism expressed in TULIP. Each one of these represents a doctrine that makes them distinctive. Okay. Now, before I get into that, what makes these guys a little bit different than other traditions is that 
most people, for example, Pentecostals or whatnot, have their own distinctive teachings, and they believe that Christians can disagree and still be somewhat Christians, right? Obviously, if you believe in something, you believe it to be true, right? But these guys are a little bit different is that they insist that their theology is the right theology. And any deviation thereof is deviation from the truth or the gospel, all right? So I have several quotes here. This is from B.B. Warfield, a Calvinist theologian. He says, Calvinism is religion at the height of its conception. Calvinism is evangelicalism in its purest and most stable expression. Meaning, evangelicalism is purest when it comes in this reform theology, okay? Next quote. The central thought of God, the central thought of Calvinism is therefore the great thought of God. All right? Keeps getting better. Calvinism is the only system which is true to the word of God. And here's my favorite from my good friend Charles Spurgeon. Calvinism is the gospel and nothing else. So the difference is, is that most people can separate the gospel from, say, speaking in tongues and whatever other things. The problem is, is when you equate your particular way of interpreting certain doctrines as the gospel, then any deviation thereof becomes a deviation from the gospel. So when you deviate from the gospel, you're deviating from salvation. That's the problem. And so you get these other quotes. By the way, most of these quotes is from a book called The Other Side of Calvinism. It's like a thousand pages. I read them all years ago, so I recommend it. I'm sure everybody here is going to go and buy it immediately after we get out of here and read through it. Calvinism is the eternal truth. Arminianism, that would be... Okay, so Arminianism to a Calvinist is anything that is not Calvinism. Okay. Now, to everybody else, Arminianism is a particular thing. and I'm not going to get into that. I don't have the time. But Arminianism has always been an inveterate lie. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. Arminian thought is best understood historically as a compromise. By the way, these guys are very intellectual people. They're sort of like upper class type intellectual professors. So fancy language, warning, fancy language. Okay. Arminian thought, I feel like I should read this like with an English accent, right? Mm -hmm. Arminian thought is best understood historically as a compromise of the Reformation gospel with the humanistic motif of the autonomy of human consciousness flowing out of the ancient pagan learning that has just been rediscovered in the Renaissance. In other words, in other words, Arminianism is pagan. That's what he's saying. And it has to do with human autonomy. It makes man great as opposed to God, as he's trying to say. All right. The last and greatest monster of the man of sin, the elixir of anti-Christianism. That would be anything that is not Calvinism. Okay. The doctrines, that would be the doctrines of Arminianism, are a perversion of the truth of God and the way of salvation. They have no scriptural foundation. Arminianism is the very essence of puppery. That would be Catholicism. Okay. Puppery sounds very British. Arminianism is the plague of the church, the scourge of sound doctrine. And Arminianism, actually, is all capitalized in the quote. I like that he was yelling. 
Arminianism is that rejected error which has become the most insidiously devised heresy ever to lay claim to biblical support. By the way, Jehovah's Witnesses lay claim to biblical support and it's way worse than anything non-Calvinists can teach. So, as you can see, these people really believe what they believe. Now, I actually admire the fact that if you believe something and have conviction about something, you should believe that what you believe is true. And any deviation is not true. Now, vehement attitude is not what I believe should be proper. We are Christians and we understand you, you could be wrong. We are human. We're investigating an eternal, infinite book laid down by God. Okay? And so that's more or less their attitude that they have concerning. Now, most Calvinists today don't have that attitude especially the hipster types with the beards and the cigars and the Carlos. Um, I don't know why, maybe it's the beer drinking that mellows them out, but they are actually not as vehement. But historically, that has been the case. So because of that, Calvinists sometimes make very interesting claims. For example, only Calvinism furnishes the necessary guarantees for any genuine intellectual and scientific activity. So only Calvinism gives you smart, intelligent people. Okay? Now, here's the other one. These get better and better. The Calvinistic countries became the countries where capitalistic system developed. So when you look at the world and you look at the rich countries, according to them, they're going to be the countries that have a Calvinistic heritage because Calvinism gave them, I guess, the scientific activity and the intellectuality to be rich and prosperous and free. Now, that is somewhat true. If you look at the world and you look at Western developed countries, it's typically the Protestant nations. Now, I would argue that not all of those Protestant nations were all Calvinistic. Germany was Lutheran. America was Puritan and Quaker and Methodist and Baptist. <laughs> so I would say that Protestantism, which is the most faithful interpretation of the Word of God that I understand does produce better cultural heritage, okay? And when a nation is being informed by the Bible and when a culture is being informed by the Bible, you're going to have a better society. That's evident throughout history, okay? So, but anyways, the claim is that it is Calvinism that makes those countries great. Calvinism is the most formidable enemy which socialism and communism faces today. There can be little question in fact that Calvinism or some modification of its essential principles is the form of religious faith that has been professed in the modern world by the most intelligent, industrious, and freest of mankind. Amen. First of all, uh, slavery was ultimately defended by reformed churches, mostly Calvinist people. George Whitfield was a Calvinist. He reintroduced slavery to Georgia. Jonathan Edwards defended slavery in his writings. Dabney, Thornwell, apartheid in South Africa was defended by the institutionalized Dutch Reformed Church. So that's not necessarily true. Interestingly, John Wesley was anti-slavery. Uh, Francis Asbury was anti-slavery. Um, most of the Arminians who fought for the abolition of slavery were, were Arminians. So, that's not necessarily true, but there were some Calvinists like Spurgeon and others who were anti-slavery. So that statement is iffy, but there's that. 
Furthermore, here's the last quote, Calvinism emerges to our side as nothing more or less than the hope of the world. So says so some of the claims of Reformed people. If you ever interact with Reformed people, you will have that type of rhetoric sometimes because they believe that their systematic theology or the way they look at the Bible is the truth and anything else is a deviation from the truth. So, what is this thing that we call Calvinism? What is the last great hope of mankind? The only thing that gives us scientific inquiry or whatever it is. Calvinism is best expressed in something that is called TULIP. All right, all you may hear it as the five points of Calvinism because there's five. All right, now before we get into that, I want to give you what is it that undermines this whole thing. There is a philosophy that sort of lays under this whole thing that drives this whole system, and it's called determinism. What is determinism? Determinism is the idea that everything that happens has happened, or is happened, or is happening, happens because it has been determined to happen the way it happens and it cannot happen any other way. Okay? So, anything that is going to happen, anything that you're going to do, everything that anybody does happens simply because it has been predetermined for them to do it the way they do it and no other way. Okay? So that's the underlying philosophy, so to speak, that sort of drives this whole thing. So you have to keep that in mind when we're looking at the way that they handle things. Okay? Once you understand this, a lot of this starts to make sense. And also, sometimes when you hear just this, you don't quite get it how they come to this unless you first understand this. So let's look at some quotes from my good friend, Mr. John Calvin. Calvin says this. This is in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. He says this, Creatures are so governed by the secret counsel of God that nothing happens but that he has knowingly and willingly decreed. So creatures are governed. Now, when they use the word govern, he means predetermined or foreordained to do everything that happens, happens by God's decree and determination. So, quote number two, thieves and murderers and other evildoers are instruments of divine providence being employed by the Lord himself to execute judgments which he has resolved to inflict. So, if somebody breaks into your house to steal, somebody gets shot in broad daylight in Chicago over a drug deal, or a drive-by in Puerto Rico, or whatever else happens, happens by divine providence. Now, all Christians believe that anything that happens, happens because God allows, right? Somebody gets killed, God is still in heaven, God could have stopped it, but he didn't. The difference in this case it's not that God is allowing a free will action of a person, but it is that God is actually determining the action to happen. So it wouldn't happen unless God determined it to happen, and He is the one that inflicts the thing. So it's not an allowance or a permitting, it's a determination, it's a foreordaining, okay? So... On to the next one. We hold that God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, according to his own wisdom, he decreed what he was to do, and now by his power executes 
what he decreed. So before the foundation of the world, before the worlds were created, God determined for things to happen, and now he's actually actuating the things that he decrees. Okay? Hence we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. So it's not only the actions, but it's the counsels and the wills of men. So choices that people make are made out of God's coordination for them to make those choices. So the counsels, that'll be the thoughts of their minds and the wills and the actions that everybody makes are made and governed by God to move exactly in the course which he has destined. Okay? That is determinism. Even our good friend, not good friend, the devil, he says, the devil and the whole train of the ungodly are in all directions held by the hand of God as with a brittle, so that they can neither conceive any mischief, nor plan what they have conceived, nor how much soever they may have planned, move a single finger to perpetrate unless insofar as he permits, nay, unless so far as he commands. Notice how he fixes that. There is no permitting. If you have determined everything to happen, you're not permitting anything to happen because what happens is what you determine to happen. There's no permission. Okay? Nay, Unless so far he commands that they are not only bound by his fetters, but are even forced to do him service. So, their undergirding system, right, is undergirded by this idea that everything that happens, happens out of God for ordination. Here's a more modern guy, our good friend John Piper. He says this, God brings about all things in according with his will. In other words, it isn't just that God manages to turn the evil aspects of our world to good for those who love him. It is rather that he himself brings about these evil aspects for his glory and his people's good. This includes, as incredible and unacceptable as it may currently seem, God's having even brought about the Nazis' brutality of Birkenau and Auschwitz, as well as the terrible killings of Dennis Rader and even the sexual abuse of a young child. By the way, Dennis Rader was the BTK killer. Serial killer. I think he killed like 10 people. So, here you have it. It's not that these people do bad things, and then God uses those bad things and turns them to good, but God foreordains even their brutality and their evil, their killings, their sexual abuse, so that everything that happens, happens out of God's foreordination. The reason for this, they teach, is because God has these different attributes. So God, to show his attributes, makes the world, sets it in motion, and then predetermines everything to show his attributes. Okay? Now we'll see that when we get to Tulip. So, so what is Tulip? Once you got that. Tulip is how they understand salvation. Okay? Today, I'm going to try to interact with this one but I'm going to give you all five of them, okay? The T stands for total depravity. Total depravity, okay. 
Total depravity is simply this. It's the belief that God decreed that Adam's fall would happen, and as a result, remember everything has been predetermined, God cursed Adam with original sin and an inherited inability to respond to the gospel or God's call to repentance. The way that this is taught is that man, he's a sinner, he can't come to God. We all believe that. The difference here is that in this teaching, man has no free will to respond, even if God were to present to him the gospel. Man is totally dead. He cannot respond. All of mankind walks towards sin and cannot do otherwise. Now, this happened out of God's foreordination. Because of that, enter the second point of Calvinism, which is unconditional election. What does this mean? Because you cannot come to God, and you're a sinner, and you have no free will, and you're stuck in your dead ways, God has to then choose certain people to save. If anybody's going to be saved, God has to choose certain people to be saved. Okay? The word unconditional means that God didn't look to your faith or merits because you don't have one. He unconditionally, or better translated, arbitrarily, chose certain people to save for his own reasons. Now, this happened before the foundation of the world. Okay? So before this happened, this was already established. God had already selected a group of people whom he was going to save, and then he had already decreed the rest of mankind to be damned, right? Because God has mercy and grace, and God also has justice and wrath. So in order to show his mercy and grace, he is going to select a group of people to be saved. In order to show his justice and wrath, he is going to decree the rest of mankind to be damned. So... If I stand here and I preach the gospel and say Melissa comes to Christ and Kelly comes to Christ and Layla comes to Christ, they were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be saved. God in time actuated their salvation. The rest, you will either get saved eventually if you're elect, and if you're not, you will not. Period. Okay? So that's unconditional election. Now, because, this, is, this follows logically, because you're totally depraved, can't come to God, and because God selected a particular group of people to save, and only those are going to be saved, Christ came to die only for those people. So, limited atonement. Christ came to die only for the people that God elected to save before the salvation of the world out of the mass of totally depraved dead humanity. So the atonement of Christ is applied specifically to the people that he came to die for. So these people have no hope of salvation because their sins have not been atoned for. Only these people have been atoned for. Because these people are going to be damned no matter what. So you were born elect or non-elect, you don't know, until it happens. Okay? So, how did God bring this about? Enter irresistible grace. Simply irresistible. All right. That's a joke. It's better than Deuteronomy, okay? It's better than that Deuteronomy. All right. <laughs> irresistible grace. Okay. God has a people. 
that he selected before the foundation of the world. He's going to spread them out through history. Okay? He's going to foreordain everything that's going to happen in their lives and everything. And irresistible grace is the teaching that when an elect person hears the gospel, God goes by the Holy Spirit secretly inside their hearts and regenerates their hearts so they can believe and then he gives them the gift of faith so that they can come to God. So while I'm preaching the gospel and Melissa is responding to the gospel and says, I want to get saved, I want to choose Christ. Melissa thinks that she's choosing Christ. What Melissa doesn't know yet is Christ chose her before the foundation of the world. She has no free will. She doesn't know any better. All of a sudden, God irresistibly gave her the grace. Irresistible means she cannot resist it. Okay? God gives her the grace, regenerates her heart first, then gives her the faith so she can believe, and then she comes and converts and receives Jesus. Okay? This is done only to the elect whom Christ died for out of the depraved humanity. Notice how logically this follows. This is a pretty tight system. Okay. Enter the last point, our favorite. Perseverance of the saints. I believe this is the one. This is probably the name that has, this is like the worst false advertising ever. Okay. Perseverance of the saints is to believe that if you have been unconditionally chosen to be saved before the foundation of the world, out of the depraved mass of dead humanity, if Christ atoned for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and if God chose you for salvation, then once you're saved, you cannot lose your salvation. You will always be saved. <laughs> because you were saved, technically, before the foundation of the world. So from eternity to eternity, you are one of God's elect. You cannot lose your salvation. That's where it comes from. You cannot lose your salvation. Now, most Christians today, this will be the most popular point of Calvinism. Most Christians will reject everything else and they'll hold to this point. that You cannot lose your salvation, eternal security, etc. Okay? So, that's more or less the five points of Calvinism. Now, often they're not taught necessarily this way. This is like a very simple way. Often you will not hear the quotes from Calvin that I gave you about determinism and things like that. Often this is presented in a way that basically says, you know, get, God gets all the glory in salvation. You don't get any glory in salvation. You don't save yourself. God does all the saving. You don't do anything. God does everything. Now, technically, it's true in their system. Sometimes I hear preachers say, you know, if God decides to save some people out of the sinfulness of... Nobody deserves to be saved, right? We're all sinners. So if God saves six people, then that's mercy. And that would be true if that was what they teach. What they don't tell you sometimes is that the reason why people are sinners is because determined them to be sinners. Then he punishes them for doing what he determined for them to do. That part you don't hear often. And that is what makes many people say, oh, that's different. Right? That's different from what I read in Scripture. But this is what undergirds their system. Okay? Determinism is what undergirds their system. Now today, I'm going to try 
to interact because we're talking about the atonement with this teaching that Christ died only for the elect. Another thing that they will tell you themselves is that if any of these points can be broken, then the whole system can be broken. You need to hold to these together because there are some Calvinists who do not hold to this one. Like Lewis Perry Chafer, was, he held to all the points, but not this one. So a lot of them will tell you that, no, if you break any point, the chain is broken. You need to hold to all of these together. So today, I am going to try to hold, to interact with this teaching because we're dealing with the atonement. Now, what is limited atonement, as you can see in the quote for the past 20 minutes, is that the Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he, through the eternal spirit, once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of his Father and purchased not only reconciliation, but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for those whom the Father has given unto him. So, basically, Christ died for the elect. All that is fancy language to say Christ died for the elect only. Okay? So, the elect are, of course, chosen by the Father from the foundation of the world to be saved so Christ did not come to die for the whole world, for, for the elect, which are spread throughout the whole world of every, every tribe, tongues, and nation, and only for those people whom he selected. Now, there's a couple of verses that they use. I don't think I'm going to get to all of them today, but I'm going to start with the more simpler ones, one of which is Matthew 1.21. I didn't put the verses here because it will be like 20 slides. But Matthew 121, it's a popular verse. It says this. Now, the story here is that the angel is talking to Joseph, who is contemplating leaving Mary because she was pregnant. You guys know the whole story. So the angel comes and says this. She will bear a son, that will be Mary, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. You know where this is going. His people. His people is understood to be the elect chosen by God. Now, I have another quote here by Brian Shortley. He says this, Did Christ come to save every person? Did he come to save the Jews only? No. He came to save his people. Jesus is not the Savior of every man, but only his own people, for, whom, for whose ransom he made a pact with the Father in the covenant of redemption. For it is said, he shall have his own people. Jesus came to save only those given to him by the Father, which would be the elect. Okay, so that's basically how they interpret that verse. His people, they understand to be the elect. So, could there be any possible explanation? Well, the context of this verse is the announcement of the birth of Jesus. The angel is speaking to Joseph, who is considering leaving Mary. Now, the phrase, his people, your people, my people, is found all throughout the Old Testament. And is typically referring to the nation of Israel. When Moses went down to Egypt, and he told Pharaoh what? Let my people go. If my people who are called by the name would repent and turn from them, etc. So my people is used to refer to the nation of Israel. Now remember, we're still, even though the book of Matthew is in your New Testament, 
time-wise, the book of Matthew is still under the Old Covenant, right? Jesus is just about to be born, okay? So the term that is used when the Bible uses the term His people in the Old Covenant is referring to the nation of Israel, which will be the physical descendants of Abraham or whoever from whatever nation has by faith attached themselves to the nation of Israel, such as um, Caleb. Caleb was not an Israelite. You know, Joshua and Caleb, remember the story? He was not an Israelite. He was a Kenosite. Rahab, she was not an Israelite. Okay? You find her name in the genealogy of Jesus, which is amazing. But she was not an Israelite. So those were his people, are the covenant nation of Israel. The Bible says, when Jesus came, he came to who? His own and his own received him not. The Gospel of Matthew is understood to be the Jewish gospel. It's written by Matthew for the Jews to give an account of the Jewish Messiah and making Christ, basically it was telling the Jewish people that Christ was that Messiah they were waiting for. So when the Bible uses the term his people, and in this case his people is referring to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel was the first ministry of Jesus Christ. He came first, primarily, his mission to this world was come to save the nation of Israel and to fulfill the promises that were given to them by God. Ultimately, he was going to die for all of mankind, but primarily he came to his people and to save his people to fulfill the promises made to them specifically. And so, if you go to Luke chapter 1, verse 30, you have a similar account but this time, Luke records the same angel speaking with Mary. So this is the angel. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. That is Jesus' primary ministry and mission was to come and save his people, which is the nation of Israel. Zacharias, if you go further down, verse 68. This is Zacharias. Now, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, and he's prophesying about John the Baptist. And he says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old salvation from our enemies, from the hand of all who hates us to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to Abraham, our father, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. So his people here clearly is talking about the Jewish people. God's people at this point in time were those who were of the nation of Israel, whom ministry Christ came primarily to serve, to save his people. So to read into it that his people are an arbitrarily mysterious selected group from the foundation of the world is reading into a verse something that is not there. I bet you you've read this verse before, before hearing about this, and you never thought that this is speaking about some pre-selected group of people from the foundation of the world. 
Okay? So, his people is specifically referring to the earthly ministry mission of Jesus Christ fulfilling the prophecy to the nation of Israel, ultimately dying for the sin of mankind. Even if his people in this text, let's suppose that they're right, that it's not Israel, the text itself proves nothing. It doesn't prove anything. Because his people could be those who freely repent and have faith in him. Those can be called his people also. So they're reading into the text something that is not there. Okay, John chapter 10, which is another verse they use. This is, this is big. It says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is 10 verse 11. 10, 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now you, you know where this is going, okay? The sheep. All right? He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and he's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. The sheep is who? The pre-selected people chosen before the foundation of the world. Okay? That's how that works. So they're saying that this verse teaches that Christ died for his sheep. Now, first principle. Just because the Bible affirms something Positively, positively doesn't mean that the negative is inferred. Meaning, just because the Bible says that Christ died for the sheep or for the church does not necessarily mean that he didn't die for anybody else. Because obviously, if he died for everybody, then he's also dying for the people he's saving along with everybody else that he died for. Okay? So just because it says Christ died for the church or Christ died for the sheep doesn't mean that that's the limit. Okay? In Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul says that Christ died or Christ loved me and gave himself for me. That doesn't mean that Christ only died for Paul. Okay? Christ didn't come to atone only for Paul. Yes, Christ died for Paul. He also died for everybody else. Okay? Or even if you're a Calvinist, you believe that Christ died for Paul and also the rest of the elect. So, principle number one. Just because something positive is affirmed doesn't mean that the negative is true. No exegesis, no Greek. We could probably move on. But what does it mean and who are the sheep in this case? What is, what is Jesus talking about? Okay. Now the assertion here is that Christ came to die for a particular group of people referred to here as the sheep. Which they say is a chosen group of people before the foundation of the world. Okay. First... Okay, that was the first second. Remember, Jesus' ministry, this is the same, same thing as before, was to the nation of Israel. Okay? Christ came to serve the nation of Israel, to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's his primary ministry. Now, we know from the scriptures that the nation of Israel was this corporate entity within which was also a separate group of people, which the Bible calls the remnant, who were those true believers, okay? You could be part of the nation of Israel, the elect of God, and you can be part of the covenant and be lost, 
like the Pharisees. But within that group were those who loved the Father, who served the Father, who loved God. Those faithful believers who worshiped God out of their own free will were God's remnant. Those people belonged to the Father. They were the Father's people, right? So Jesus comes along, this man calling himself Christ, calling himself the Messiah, a good Jew would question that because any man who calls himself a God is blaspheming and that's punishable by the law. So these people who were from the Father, who loved the Father, think of it this way. You got, you got an iPhone, right? And then you got all these upgrades. So you get to iOS 10, but they release iOS 11 you don't have iOS 11 yet, you're still in iOS 10, okay? So you have the Old Testament, you have all these revelations that are happening, and then we get to the final update, which is iOS Jesus. And iOS Jesus is here, but you still haven't downloaded him yet. You're still in iOS 10. So the sheep were those Jews who loved the Lord, but they were still looking at Jesus, wondering, who is this guy? Now, those people who belonged to the Father, the Father, in turn, was given them to His Son. So Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Who are those all people? Those are those Old Testament, at, at that time, when Jesus was here, He was still in the Old Covenant. Those are Old Testament Jews who were alive, who understood the Bible, who loved the Lord, who were not hypocrites like the Pharisees, the Father was drawing them to Jesus. So Jesus was receiving them. I am the shepherd. My sheep, Jesus says, hear my voice. They know my voice. How? Because anybody who hears and learns from the Father, Jesus says, comes to me, and whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. So anybody who hears and learns from the Father will come to me. Now Jesus is talking about a situation happening in his time. When Jesus resurrects and ascends unto heaven, then the whole situation changes. But during his time, you have this in-between period where you could be a faithful Jew, yet, you know, John the Baptist doubted the, the if, Jesus was the Christ. He sent a guy. He's like, hey, John the Baptist sent me to ask you, are you the Christ? And Jesus says, well, look at the things that I do. I heal people. I, people are dead. I raise them up. And I walk on water. Go and tell them that. John the Baptist was a believer. But he was still downloading the software. He was still downloading iOS Jesus. You see what I mean? So the sheep are those people from the time of Jesus when he was alive who had learned from the Father, who were faithful Jews, who eventually the Father was giving them to His Son. And all those that the Father gave to the Son came to Jesus. Those are the, the 120, for example, in the upper room. You have 120 people that gather in the upper room. The rest of Israel, including the Pharisees, were hypocrites. So Jesus' ministry was Basically pointing out to the Pharisees the reason why you don't believe. In fact, John chapter 8. Go to John chapter 8, 31. This is Jesus' street preaching event. 
Now he's speaking to Jewish. These are Pharisees who observed the law, who read the law, who understood the law. Jesus says to them, if you continue in my word and you're truly my disciples. Now, listen what, to what he says. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who believed or had believed him. If you continue in my word, he says, then you're truly my disciple, disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answer him, we're Abraham's descendant and have never been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Um, so if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. We are Abraham's descendants, they said, yet you, I know you're Abraham's descendants, he said, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak these things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. The answer to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Why is it that you're trying to kill me? A man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You're doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And he said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded from and come from God. For I have not come out of my own initiative, but he sent me. So if you Jews were truly of the father, then you would come to me and you would love me. But you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. So Jesus tells these Jewish people who observe the law, the reason why you're not downloading iOS Jesus is because you have an Android. You've never had an iPhone. You were never saved. You were never God's people. You're hypocrites. That's why you don't come to me. Because if you were of the Father, if you truly believed God, if you were truly a believer like Abraham was, then you would come to me. You would see. And all who belongs to the Father, you know, all that the Father has given me, I will receive and I will not cast them out. Because he is the good shepherd and he lays his down for the sheep. See, he was using a, a figure of speech. The shepherd guides the sheep. He takes care of them. And the sheep are those people, those Jewish people that came to Christ, who belonged to the Father, not because necessarily they were elected before the foundation of the world, because they were just faithful Jews who loved God the Father. And God was opening the eyes to understand who Jesus was, and they were coming to Christ. Meanwhile, Jesus was sealing the unbelievers in their unbelief. If you notice the ministry of Jesus, wherever Jesus went, he would do a miracle. What he would say, don't tell anybody I did this, right? Don't say to anybody that I am the Christ. Don't tell anybody. Why? So that they will be blinded. God sealed the Jewish people in their rebellion. He blinded them. They were sinners and he closed their eyes so they could not believe. Why? To accomplish his 
plan of redemption. Those people, along with the Romans, who are representative of mankind, were the ones who were going to kill Jesus. And to secure the death and burial of his son, God enacted a judicial hardening on the nation of Israel, blinding them, closing their eyes. The sheep followed him. The rest were blinded so that in their blindness they will kill Christ so he could die for the sins of mankind. So God does determine things, including using the sinful acts of men. He does not predetermine them, but he uses them and to determine a plan to secure the salvation of mankind with the death of his son. You see this in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. He says this, uh, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the wicked, by the hands of wicked men and put him to death. So the death of Jesus was the predetermined plan of God. And by his predetermined plan and foreknowledge, the hands of wicked men nail him to the cross. So the sheep were those people that loved the father. They were illuminated. They were brought to Christ, representing the 120 in the upper room. The apostles were those people. And then everybody else. Remember Jesus sometimes will teach a parable. And nobody would understand, and then he would go to his 12 disciples, and he would, or to his disciples, and explain it only to them, and nobody else. Those are his sheep. Everybody else was being blinded, because in their blindness, they crucified him, and in his crucifixion, he died for their sin, to redeem them. Some of them may have gone saved afterwards, we don't know. But God does determine some things to happen but I believe the Bible does not teach that God has predetermined everything that happens, including the thoughts and desires of men who sexually abuse young children. Okay? And so, one last quote. Let me give you one last quote. I'm going to end with this. I will continue. Let me see if I have it here. Okay. A.W. Tozer. This is from the Knowledge of the Holy. Very good book, if you have it, if you've lent it and they haven't returned it to you. Um... Dr. Tozer says this, God sovereignly decreed that man should be free to exercise moral choice. Man from the beginning has fulfilled the decree by making his choice between good and evil. When he chooses to do evil, he does not countervail the sovereign will of God, but fulfills it. Inasmuch as the eternal decree decided not which choice the man should make, but that he should be free to make it. If in his absolute freedom, God has will to give man limited freedom. Who is there to stay his hand or say, what doest thou? Man's will is free because God is sovereign. A God less than sovereign could not bestow moral freedom upon his creatures. He would be afraid to do so. What he's saying is that God does not predetermine everything because he doesn't have to. People's moral choices and free will can never countervail a sovereign God. God will work with your moral 
choices and the sinfulness of man and he will bring about what he has planned, not causing it, but using it because he's God. Now, a God less than sovereign would be afraid to do so. See, you could be, uh, if you can play both sides of, uh, let's say, uh, if you're playing a pool and you can play both sides, that's pretty good. You can win every time. But if you play against like five people and you beat them, then you're a good pool player. So God is the best pool player. <laughs> so he plays with all of our choices or whatever, and he's still in his foreknowledge and predetermined plan, he even brought about the death of Jesus Christ exactly as he had prophesied that it was going to happen in the old hundreds of years before without causing the evil moral choices of those people. So, props to Tozer, real G for life. Um, that's an excellent quote from him. So, I will continue next time. I have much more and much other verses, but for now, this is our interaction with... Reform theology and we will interact with some more as we go on. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your grace, for your mercy, Lord. We thank you that you came and died for us, Lord, and not only us, but we have hope that every single person that we come across in our lives and every single person that we see that you have died for their sin to accomplish their salvation, Lord. We pray that you may help us as a church to carry out your good news to the world and that you may use us to bring many to salvation, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.